The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. So being able to say, when we enforce against these things, we're enforcing based on their behavior not based on the content, and largely not based on who's behind them. And I say largely there only because if there are certain actors that repeatedly engage in these campaigns, we remove them from our platform completely. For example, the Russian-based IRA is not permitted on Facebook in any form. But generally, we're focused on behavior and we are not focused on the content of these campaigns. And that's one of the key ways we're able to enforce against domestic operations in addition to foreign. I'm Quinta Jurassic. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 1st, 2021. It's another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our podcast series on our online information ecosystem. This week, Evelyn Duick and I are glad to be able to bring you an episode we've wanted to record for a while, a conversation with Nathaniel Gleicher, the head of security policy at Facebook. He runs the corner of Facebook that focuses on identifying and tackling threats aimed at the platform including information operations. We discussed a new report released by Nathaniel's team on the state of influence operations 2017 to 2020. What kind of trends is Facebook seeing? What's Nathaniel's response to reports that Facebook is slower to act in taking down dangerous content outside the US? What about the argument that Facebook is designed to encourage circulation of exactly the kind of incendiary content that Nathaniel is trying to get rid of? And, of course, we argued over Facebook's use of the term coordinated and authentic behavior to describe what Nathaniel argues is a particularly troubling type of influence operation. How does Facebook define CIB? Does it mean what you think it means? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 1st, coordinating inauthentic behavior with Facebook's head of security policy. Nathaniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We are obviously not going to ask you to answer for all of Facebook's sins today, but so that we can establish exactly what sins we can ask you to answer for, can you tell us what your job involves? What exactly does head of security policy mean? What an excellent and auspicious start. I am Facebook's head of security policy, as you said, and what that means is my team leads our work to find and tackle adversarial threats across the platform. And we sort of coordinate the company's strategy to deal with this. When I say adversarial threats, what I mean are determined, well-resourced threat actors, either groups or individuals that are looking systemically to manipulate the platform or directly target users across the platform. We think about four types, let's say, of adversarial threats in broad. First, Overt influence operations, efforts to manipulate public debate where the actor behind it is doing it in their own voice. So, for example, think about uh, state media as a good example of an overt influence operation. Second, covert influence operations. And we'll talk more about coordinated, inauthentic behavior, I'm sure, in a minute. But here, what we mean are any coordinated effort to manipulate or corrupt public debate, to conceal the person who's behind that operation make it look like the campaign is coming from an independent voice when in fact it's not. So for example, if you were uh, working for a particular government and you created a network of independent seeming media organizations that looked like they were public media or independent media and you ran them so that you could push out your own messages and narratives with no one understanding who was really behind it, that would be a covert influence operation. Third, cyber espionage direct hacking or direct efforts to exploit the accounts of users on Facebook. And then fourth, fraud and scams, often financially motivated efforts to manipulate public debate to try to profit over confusion, deception, or extreme content. And it's important to remember, I think we'll talk on this podcast quite a bit about state-backed actors and politically motivated influence operations, but a lot of what we see is actually financially motivated. And one resource that's useful for people to think about sort of the scope of my team and the things that we focus on, just last month, we released a threat report, which details particularly for covert influence operations, 
the threat trends we've seen over the last several years and includes attached with it a data set of the more than 150 CIB campaigns that we have publicly enforced against and announced. So that people can look and see statistics about the campaigns, detailed write-ups of what we've seen, and some of the trends. So as we're going through, if people are listening and they have questions about something that comes up or they want to check something, that's a really good resource to turn to. And we'll we'll discuss that report in a minute because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Sure. So how do you how do you define success in your role? In in talking this over with Evelyn in advance of sort of discussing what we were going to ask you, I I was thinking of a famous line from the IRA after a failed assassination attempt on Margaret Thatcher, and I promise this is relevant, saying that the IRA only had to be lucky once, but the British had to be lucky every time. And I hear that repurposed a lot by national security folks that, you know, they have to be lucky constantly. They always have to get it right. It seems to me that there might be a similar dynamic in your role, except that if you're not lucky, you might not even know until a few years down the road. So how do you quantify success and think about the potential uh, lack of success that might come back to bite you later? Yeah, and it's probably worth noting that when you mentioned the IRA there, you were talking about the Irish IRA as opposed to the Russia-based IRA. You That's actually the, the crossover. F- the for first our time listeners. that the the Irish IRA has appeared on this podcast. Excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's a really good question. I think the challenge that you're describing isn't something that's unique to influence operations. It's a pattern of any defender who's working to protect sort of a platform or public debate or a community against an external threat. You have the challenge that the threat actors control the narrative and they control the tempo and that you are constantly trying to react. And I think this is something that if you look at um, strategic analysis from everyone from uh, law enforcement and the FBI to in the military context, thinking about how to succeed when you're primarily in a defensive position is a particularly interesting challenge. I I would like to say that we will catch every influence operation early and stop it early. But you have to recognize that as threat actors will continue to innovate and continue to evolve, you're not going to catch everything. And I think you also have to recognize that while Facebook and social media broadly are a really important piece of tackling influence operations, we're only one piece. If you think about protecting an election, if you think about protecting public debate, you have to have government, you have to have civil society, you have to have the media, and you have to have industry all thinking about the challenge. So the way I think about success and the way I have found defenders to be most effective is when they recognize that their goal is over time to force the bad guys they're tackling to work harder. So in other words, we know that state-backed actors, we know that actors linked to Russia, actors linked to Iran, actors linked to other governments, and financially motivated actors are going to keep trying and they're going to keep evolving. But over time, we can make our platforms more resistant to deception and more conducive to authenticity. And for us, we can do that by publicly announcing and exposing these campaigns, building awareness around what the operations are, sharing information with third-party researchers and civil society so that there are far more eyes focused on these threats. We can also do it by changing the platform itself, by improving our fake account detection, by putting labels on certain pieces of content, for example, labeling content from state media organizations so people know when something's coming from a state-backed media organization. All of these things make the job of the threat actors harder, and we see them evolve and try to respond to that. I think one of the best ways to look at success in a space like this is to look at the movement of the threat actors you're tackling. And one of the clear trends over the past couple of years is that we're seeing threat actors move away from traditional social media or the major social media platforms and out to newer social media platforms, out to the open internet where they can run websites, places where they can try to hide from the enforcement that's getting more and more aggressive. So you talked a lot just then about exposing operations and publicizing them. But that gets to another point of what does success look like? Because certainly you release these now monthly reports about the operations that you've taken down. And quite often there's, you know, these great headlines about how Facebook has uncovered and taken down a whole bunch of new operations. But there is a sort of question of what is the point of 
this kind of transparency and this kind of reporting um, and the point in fact of even removing a, a lot of this material I think when we talk about information operations there's this image that gets conjured up of like a hypodermic needle model of propaganda where anyone that sees a piece of inauthentic content is you know automatically manipulated into believing what they see but in fact the evidence that these campaigns work in that way is I think it's fair to say mixed at best and one of the more sort of concerning impacts that they can have is just making people distrustful of all the information that they see or if not distrustful then just apathetic which gets into this concept of perception hacking so uh, let's start by defining that what what does perception hacking mean sure perception hacking essentially refers to a trend where we're seeing threat actors play on the fact that the public thinks that influence operations are all over the place. So it turns out that particularly in recent years, it has gotten harder and harder to run networks of fake accounts on the major social media platforms because they're getting caught early and they're getting caught before they can have the reach and impact that these actors might like. Rather than trying to run these campaigns that get caught, we're increasingly seeing particularly some of the more sophisticated threat actors just play on the public's fear that these campaigns are out there. One example of this actually happened very shortly before the 2018 midterms in the United States, where we saw Russian actors publicly claim that they were running an influence operation to target the U.S. public debate and that they would decide who won and who lost. And to support that, they offered up a relatively small number of fake accounts on Instagram as evidence of this massive campaign they had. Now, it ultimately turned out that the campaign didn't have the impact that I expect they'd want because shortly before they made their announcement, we had already removed those accounts and announced them publicly based in part on a tip from the FBI. And those accounts didn't reach very many people. It wasn't anywhere near the major campaign that they played it off as, but they were trying to play on everyone's fear that these campaigns are out there. And that's what a perception hack is. And it's something that I think we're seeing more of as enforcement against these campaigns gets stronger and stronger. Okay, so that's the follow-up question then to sort of the ground I was laying earlier is how you think about walking that line between publicizing how well you're doing and how much you're grabbing and, and taking down in information operations versus furthering threat actors' goals of creating exactly that perception that you were talking about, that this kind of stuff is everywhere and something to be really worried about, especially given that you know, if if what you're saying is is true, that a lot of these campaigns don't have very high level of engagement. And I think that certainly does seem to be the case if you read a lot of the researchers' reports about them. That's not necessarily the impression that you would get reading a lot of the press coverage of this these campaigns, and also, you know, of the of, unless you're really digging into the detail of the announcements that you make, I don't know that that would be the headline takeaway. So, how do you think about walking that line? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the first thing to say, though, is that the fact that many of these campaigns aren't getting a lot of engagement, I think that that's increasingly true today. It wasn't necessarily as true as you go back in time. Some of that change is a result of all the defense being played by government, by industry, and by civil society. And it's important to call that out. We're seeing some of the environment change because I think you're seeing defenders on the field. In 2016, we really didn't have teams that tackled this type of threat in government, in industry, or civil society, and we do today. Now, to talk about how you tackle that and how you balance this, I mentioned, I think, that this is a whole-of-society response, and you have a lot of different players engaged in protecting public debate. For us, when we think about our public reporting, it's really a couple of different things. There are a few different goals embedded in that. First, we want to provide awareness and consequences to the actors who are behind these campaigns. If we publicize what they're doing, there's a name and shame element. It also exposes what they're doing and it makes it less likely they'll continue. Second, we want to share information with the broader research community so that more people can be looking for these types of campaigns. No matter how big of a team we have, there are always going to be more experts outside Facebook than inside Facebook. And one of the real success stories, I think, of the last several years is the broad community across civil society, across journalism, that has really built up to find and expose these campaigns. And it's interesting, if you look at that record of 150 public takedowns, or 100, more than 150 public takedowns, I guess now, that's attached to that threat report, 
about two thirds of them begin from our own internal investigations. And about one third come in whole or in part from tips by external partners. That's a couple of the goals. But if we keep going, the third goal that I think is actually really important is to normalize the fact that these campaigns exist. There are influence operations out there. There are going to continue to be influence operations out there. And the fact that one exists doesn't mean that in public debate, we should treat it as consequential or transformative. And one of the theses that we came to early on was the only way to do that was to show people that consistently these things are out there and they're getting caught. And so we walk this line as we're announcing these reports. And if you look at the reports as you read them, we are very deliberate about what we say. We do not speculate. We don't hypothesize. We only say who's behind an operation, what we call attributing an operation, if we have very clear evidence to support that conclusion. And we don't sort of muse about what they might have been doing. We only say what we can prove. And the reason we do that is over time by reporting these, you can reassure people that effectively the cops are on the beat. Facebook does this. Twitter does this. Google has reporting. You see the U.S. government making public announcements about these types of things. It normalizes the fact that these campaigns are out there and that they're being taken down. And we do it consistently with statistics to sort of show you can see how many people they're reaching, how many followers they have, and you can understand the significance of them and the impact that they would cause. So do you consider Facebook's handling of the 2020 election in the United States successful, at least when it comes to the the corner of the company that you work in? I mean, I think it's important to start by saying, I don't think any company can protect an election by itself. You have to have the other platforms involved. You have to have government, civil society. And so the defense of the election is a broad effort across the community. I think two good markers for this in terms of our work and the work of the whole community are first, I know Chris Krebs, former director of CISA, has said that this was the most secure election in US history. And I haven't seen any credible efforts to dispute that. That's a very strong endorsement of the work that was done across society. The other way to look at it that I think is important is if you look in 2016, Russian actors targeted the election and were caught and exposed in the months after the vote. If you look at 2018, Russian actors targeted the election and were caught and exposed days before votes were cast. If you look at 2020, we saw Russian operations, Iranian-linked operations, U.S. domestic operations, and one Chinese operation, although it was fairly limited, targeting public debate ahead of the election. But these were largely caught months, and in some cases, more than a year before the vote. And that is a really encouraging trend. So yes, I do think that there was a lot of success there. So let's talk about the report that you mentioned earlier, which is titled, for anyone who wants to look it up, The State of Influence Operations 2017 to 2020. It's a super interesting document, so thank you for for putting it out there. But we're curious to get you to talk a bit about some of the trends you identified. So to start off, can you tell us about the the trend that you note in the report about the blurring of the lines between authentic public debate and manipulation? And maybe talk a little bit about how you draw the line in deciding what to take down, given that that line is so blurry. Sure. And I think it's important to start and say the threat report is based on analyzing this record of more than 150 public CIB takedowns that we've conducted, which means that obviously the analysis in the report is rooted in coordinated inauthentic behavior and a particular subset of the broader debate around influence operations. I'm sure we'll talk about that in more detail, but I think we should just put that out there to start because this is a threat report about a piece of the puzzle. What we do in it is we talk through some of the trends that we've seen in recent years, and we use them to think about other places where we think the threat may be going in the future. And the idea behind the report is that I think there is comprehensive public analysis being conducted by civil society experts, by independent researchers. We see reporting coming out of the U.S. government all about the different pieces of the puzzle that they can see and understand. For us at at Facebook, there's a particular piece of the puzzle that we can see and understand particularly well. And it is deceptive behavior that occurs on our platforms. And in particular, deceptive behavior that is shielded from the public so that other researchers might not see it. The goal of the threat report is for us to share as much of the analysis that we've seen 
to empower all the researchers in other parts of the community to engage with it and respond. Now, you were asking about a particular trend. We identify several of them, which is around the blurring of the lines between deception and public debate. What we mean when we say that, coordinated inauthentic behavior, the term that we started using in 2017, is designed to be narrow. And it requires, for example, that the operation centrally rely on the use of fake accounts to mislead people about who's behind the campaign. That's designed to be a narrow scope. And enforcement has gotten better and better and better at tackling CIB. Now, what that means, of course, is that the bad guys don't just give up. <laughs> As one tactic becomes less effective, they look for other things they could try to do. And so we have seen both sophisticated established threat actors and sort of newer people testing the space, try other techniques, things that aren't as obviously in violation and that raise some really difficult questions about how public debate should work online. One example we mentioned in the threat report, which I think is a really interesting one, is political campaigns in the United States have had people go to knock on doors for years. And they often hire people to go and knock on doors. If someone comes to your, to your door and knocks on your door and says, I really want you to vote for candidate X and here's why I believe in them. They probably don't say whether they're a volunteer or whether they're being paid by the campaign. And that hasn't been a requirement. Online, if a campaign hires a thousand people to use their real authentic social media accounts on any platform to advocate for their candidate, should those people be required to disclose that they're being paid? I think it's a really hard question. If you think about it similarly to the physical world, you'd say, no, we don't require that from door knockers and people who do this in the real world. So why would we require it online? But you might also think that the online environment is fundamentally different and the impact of this large number of accounts could be very different. So you should require that disclosure. But I think that is one example of a whole host of questions that are being raised that are fundamentally about what boundaries should we put around public debate and public advocacy as we head into an election in a democracy. Answering the question of where that line should be is something where you really want the publicly elected representatives of the people, the government, to pass, to clarify, to provide some consistent lines around where that those lines should be divided. Okay, so you know I'm raring to get into that topic with you of how we draw the lines around CIB in particular. But before we do, I want to ask about one of my other bugbears in this space, which is one of the other trends you identify in your report, the ratio between foreign and domestic operations over time. So something that has long frustrated me in this space was the early disproportionate focus, to my mind, on foreign operations, as well as the very different language that we often use when talking about foreign operations. A lot of the things that you've been saying so far today are about defenders and threat actors and things like that, this really militarized language. While often when we talk about homegrown disinformation, it gets talked about in the language of, of speech rights and you know political campaigning and where is the line and, and things like that. And I think that dissonance is, is really notable. And so I wonder, first of all, if you can tell us what your report says about those trends that you're seeing between foreign versus domestic. And second, what is responsible for those trends? Is it that the makeup has actually changed or is it about how you're enforcing against them differently over time? And do you perhaps hesitate more when it comes to taking down a domestic operation, knowing as you must that there's going to be greater public outcry about it, even if it's, you know, substantively from your point of view, if you were not looking at the source of the behavior, exactly the same kind of behavior? Yeah. And it's actually interesting in many ways, the trend that the report shows on this is that there isn't a trend. So we've been reporting these from 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, and that's all included in the report. And as you say, if we think about public debate in 2018 and 2019, I think it was heavily focused on foreign interference. If we think about public debate in 2020 and moving into 2021, certainly I think that conversation has shifted to be heavily focused on domestic interference or domestic manipulation. The interesting thing about the data is that it shows that influence operations that we've removed have had more or less equal components of foreign and domestic operations. And that's been largely consistent in 2018, 2019, and 2020. It's interesting to note that uh, when we think about the US elections in 2020, 
there were 16 influence operations, CIB campaigns that we removed that we assessed had some impact that were targeted at or engaged with public debate ahead of the election. Five of those campaigns were linked to actors from Russia. Five of those campaigns were linked to actors from Iran. One of those campaigns was linked to actors from China, and five of them were linked to domestic actors, just as many domestic as from either of the foreign threat actors. And so I think one of the important insights here is influence operations aren't a foreign interference problem or a domestic manipulation problem. Both of those challenges are manifest, and we need to be able to tackle both of them at once. And so to your point about how we think about foreign versus domestic, one of the really important components of our CIB enforcement is that we are focused on the behavior of these campaigns as opposed to the content they share, or in most cases, the actor who's behind it. This derives from a framework put together by Camille Francois, where she talks about the ABC framework or actors, behaviors, and content. One of the things that we've learned is that if you focus on the content of influence operations, it ends up being a very imprecise enforcement because we regularly see people who are not involved in an influence operation sharing content from it. And we also regularly see influence operations intentionally drawing content from innocent, unconnected users to use themselves, partly in the goal I would expect of tricking the platforms into over-enforcing, silencing a bunch of innocent people, and then drawing all sorts of backlash and creating more of that division. Rather than looking at content, we look at behavior. Is the actor centrally relying on fake accounts? What are the tactics and the techniques that they're deploying to manipulate people or to conceal their identity? That is a better way to understand who's really involved in the operation. But also, it's a consistent framework so that whether you're talking about foreign actors or domestic actors, if they're using the same deceptive tactics, we enforce against them in the same way. And it's particularly important because CIB campaigns, from a content perspective, tend to target publicly divisive issues, which means particularly if you're thinking about a domestic operation, whenever you take enforcement, approximately half of the country's population are probably going to be aligned in some way with the content behind the campaign and are going to be worried that you took action out of bias or alignment with the actors who are behind it. So being able to say, when we enforce against these things, we're enforcing based on their behavior, not based on the content and largely not based on who's behind them. And I say largely there only because if there are certain actors that repeatedly engage in these campaigns, we remove them from our platform completely. For example, the Russian-based IRA is not permitted on Facebook in any form. But generally, we're focused on behavior and we are not focused on the content of these campaigns. And that's one of the key ways we're able to enforce against domestic operations in addition to foreign. So when it comes to both foreign and domestic operations, your report identifies the United States as really right up there. You do point to countries that are most targeted by information operations and countries that are the biggest sources. So the, the U.S. is first in targeted by foreign operations, second in targeted by domestic operations, and the number four source of operations. This made me think of a, a line that my lawfare colleague Alan Rosenstein has about how the U.S. has both some of the most advanced cyber tools and the most vulnerability to cyber attacks. So the way that he puts it is that the U.S. has the biggest rocks, but it also has the glassiest house. Is that true when it comes to information operations as well? I think influence operations are often particularly impactful or at least targeted at open societies and open public debate. I think that that dynamic that you described, to be honest, is true for almost every country. But one dynamic that's really interesting, if you look at the top targeted countries, the US is one of them, the United Kingdom is another, Ukraine is another, many of the countries that are highly targeted are also countries where we see the most effective and expert civil society community that has grown up to tackle and expose these operations. And so there's this feedback loop where high levels of targeting, it's almost like they're generating white blood cells to respond to these threats, right? They're generating defense systems. And we're seeing the civil society communities grow up in countries that are heavily targeted. And so how, how do we know, though, that the United States actually is the most targeted country as opposed to just 
where you take down more operations because you're looking more closely. There's been a lot of reporting about Facebook responding to public pressure in some markets more than others. There are information operations obviously targeting overseas countries, and there have been a number of whistleblower reports about discontent within Facebook about how the platform hasn't taken down operations targeting Honduras, Azerbaijan. There are a number of other countries where Facebook was reportedly a lot slower to act than it is in the U.S. or that it didn't disclose takedowns. This is, I think, one of the most widespread concerns and criticisms about Facebook and the, the platform's work on information operations. And so I'm, I'm sure our, our listeners would be interested in hearing your response to it. So first, I would just say, I think this is a completely reasonable concern, and I think we should get pushed on this. This is why we're public about our CIB takedowns. You can take a look at the data set. I think it's very important to be conscious of saying, I wouldn't claim to know the entire denominator. I wouldn't claim to say we've caught every CIB campaign. But if you look at the data set there, it represents operations targeting more than 50 countries in more than 30 languages. Many of them target communities in the global south. Uh, The majority of the campaigns are actually outside the United States and Europe. Despite the fact that the public debate focuses on influence operations in the US and Europe, I think many of and much of the innovation and the emerging threat that we're seeing is outside of those countries and regions. And so I think it's really important we focus in those areas. Being public about these campaigns and being public about these enforcements is one of the best ways to show the work that we're doing and show the consistent global focus. That said, I think there are a couple of other things to be conscious of. First is there are different types of deception, different types of violations at play here. This report is about CIB. And obviously if something doesn't rise to the level of CIB, We might still enforce against it, but it might not be included in the report. So obviously the report is focused on one particular type of threat. The threat that I would say is sort of the most egregious and the most deceptive type of campaign that we see. In addition, we prioritize and focus our investigations based on things like upcoming major civic events or communities or environments where we're seeing particular targeting or particular threat. And that can influence where we're doing the research, right? And what we find. I think it's interesting. People often think about the 2020 elections in the United States in November. And as would surprise no one, we had a dedicated team that was focused on the lead up to that election that started as far back as late 2019, recognizing how seriously targeted that election would be. And that does influence where we find things. What I think people often don't think about is just a few days after the US election was the Myanmar election. And we had another team focused on that election and doing similar work, which led to a whole stream of exposures and enforcements in that context. And so focusing on civic events obviously does shape the data set. But I think nevertheless, this set is the most comprehensive public set that I'm aware of, of influence operations. There are state-backed operations and non-state-backed operations, domestic and foreign. There are operations that touch every continent except Antarctica, as far as I know so far. And by reporting that, I think we can provide as much public context as possible about how we're prioritizing and the enforcements we're doing. The last thing that I would note in terms of time and investigation, I think there has been pressure and I've seen it on how long these investigations can take. And the truth is, is that detailed investigations into determined threat actors that are operating to hide their identity can take time. I would like to say we will catch every single one as quickly as possible. But you have to be careful in two ways as you run these investigations. First, it's really important to get the full scope of the network. If you enforce against a quarter of an operation or half of an operation, the rest of it goes underground and it reconstitutes. And you're right back where you were two or three months later. I would much rather take a little bit of extra time and get the entire operation down so that we can be much more effective in disrupting the activity of the bad behavior. And then the other thing is, I think it's really important to be careful and thoughtful about things like attribution. When we are going to publicly say, we see this operation is linked to the intelligence service of a particular country, or is linked to people associated with the government of a particular country, I think it's very important that we be right. And it's very important that we be confident in the assessment that we're making, because there's going to be a lot of suspicion and criticism. And if we're speculating, we feed right back into the concerns that Evelyn was raising earlier about perception hacking. And so that's some of the things that drive this. But overall, I think this is a very broad data set that shows 
the evolution of influence operations over recent years. And I'm really proud of the work that the team has done globally to find and stop these operations wherever they're targeted. I'm not sure that the example of Facebook's actions in Myanmar shortly after the US election is the example that you think it is for, you know, oh, we don't just respond to public pressure in the US and look more closely in the US, given that there perhaps is no greater example of public pressure and criticism on Facebook than, you know, its actions in Myanmar. And the fact that, you know, you then subsequently took a lot of action in Myanmar perhaps only bolsters the point that this stuff is where you look for it. Um, it's the street lamp effect, right? Like the guy that, why are you looking for your keys under the, the street light uh, rather than over there in the bushes where you lost it? Well, because that's where the light is. But I think, you know, this is a good transition to our old sparring ground, Nathaniel, which is the category <laughs> at all of coordinated inauthentic behavior and what it really means, if anything. So, you know, it, the whole thing was created uh, in response to the revelations about Russian interference in the 2020 election. But a lot of of the things that you talked about before, you know, you're concerned to alleviate concerns about bias. So you enforce it consistently against all sorts of actors, whether they be foreign or domestic, and you, you know, publicize your actions to show these kinds of enforcement um, so that you can be really upfront about your, about your enforcement and what you're doing. A lot of that can be illusory if the category itself is subjective and not that well defined. And this is actually, you know, kind of personal for me, because when I first entered this space and heard people talking about this thing, you know, coordinated and authentic behavior, CIB, I assumed as someone with no technical background, that it was some sort of really sophisticated and objective, like cyber thing that I just didn't understand. And so I was kind of scared to ask about it. But a few years later, here I am asking about it because <laughs> I, I dug into it and I became much less sure that there's this like scientific category of CIB that really means anything. I like to tease you about the video that Facebook put out explaining coordinated inauthentic behavior where there's this image of you with dots on a whiteboard and you're drawing lines between them like it explains oh they're coordinating I, I get it now so so let's start at the beginning that's a long rant and I'll give you an opportunity to respond to it perhaps unlike members of congress that don't give you a chance to respond what does Facebook consider coordinated inauthentic behavior to mean yeah I do think I will say before I start that is just to note I think the U.S. and Myanmar are two good examples of elections that we've worked on aggressively recently. But if you look at the last couple of months, I think most of the takedowns you would see are from Ethiopia, Uganda, Mexico, Azerbaijan, and a range of other countries. So I think there's a number of examples, but I do think the breadth of the enforcement is what is useful and important in understanding the scope of the work. As for CIB, we developed the term CIB in late 2017. And we defined it quite narrowly then and continue to define it narrowly today. Now that's different from how it is used in public debate. I think it is often used in a much broader way to describe sort of anything deceptive online and the tension between the technical narrow definition that we use and the broader public debate around it. It's a very important one to call out. I think it's worth noting as we start this to remember my background is in cybersecurity. And if I think about the definitions around different types of threats online two decades ago, it actually feels very similar to the debates we're having today about definitions in the influence operations space. I think that we are early in this context and we should expect definitions to continue to evolve and we should expect people to debate about definitions. The tactics of the platforms to counter these threats should change and evolve. The definitions civil society uses should change and evolve. And the tactics that government deploys should change and evolve. So from our perspective, coordinated inauthentic behavior means any network of any coordinated network of pages, groups, and accounts on Instagram, on Facebook that are working together to mislead people about who's behind them. And to do that, they are centrally relying on the use of fake accounts. That's the definition. That definition is public in our community standards. It is built on the original definition from 2017, and we've refined it since then to keep it sort of tight and focused. The goal of this is to say that this is a very specific area of threat where we see the most aggressive actors, the most egregious deception, and a place where platforms have special ability and responsibility. 
right? If you are using a network of fake accounts to conceal your identity, it's going to be incredibly hard for anyone in the public or any external researcher to pierce that veil. This is a place where we can really help and have the most impact by exposing this with the tools that we have and we can see. I think that as you think about influence operations and deception more broadly, it's very important to recognize that we're talking about different types of threats and to tightly define them. If we talk about all deception online as one big morass, it becomes very hard to make progress because if you can't define a problem, you can't solve it. And so what we did in 2017 and what the teams have continued to do is to say, deception online is a very broad challenge. There's the question about whether content is true or false. There's the question about whether a financially motivated actor is trying to make something look more popular than it is. There's the question about whether someone is running a coordinated campaign to conceal their identity. We can tightly define this particularly egregious space, CIB, and we can work to drive down the actors who are engaged in it to make it harder and harder. There are still other types of deception out there that need to be more tightly defined. And the team has been working on those as well as we think about our broader work on inauthentic behavior, our work on overt influence operations on cyber espionage and some of these other spaces. But what we try to do is take a piece, define it cleanly, drive down the actors in that space and make life harder for them and then move on to the next piece. And so I think it's both important to recognize that definitions are going to continue to change. I think they should, quite frankly. I expect that our definition of CIB and how we tackle it will continue to evolve as the threat actors evolve and as we learn more. But that CIB is only one piece of the puzzle. And if we try to treat it as everything, then it won't be sufficient. Okay, so what are you waiting for? I mean, it's been four years and you were just talking about the need for the category to evolve and, you know, not to talk about the the category as one big morass, but I, I don't know that the, the category is evolving. I think, you know, it, as you were just talking about it, it's a very limited category, but it does get all of the focus. And the report that we were just talking about that you just released is all about CIB and all of the, the public reports that you release with with examples are all about CIB takedowns. And it has, in fact, become this catch-all term that people use to talk about manipulation on social media generally, even on platforms other than Facebook. And that's not entirely your fault or even, you know, primarily your fault. It's just the way that the public has come to perceive it. Uh, You know, other platforms even have it in their community standards. TikTok, for example, uh, has it in its community guidelines that it's enforcing against coordinated inauthentic behaviours. Members of Congress have asked other platforms what they're doing to combat CIB. But as we were saying, it's this term that has been invented by by Facebook. And in in my opinion, it's kind of arbitrary. I mean, Alex Stamos, Facebook's former chief security officer, told us on this very podcast that the company was going to call it coordinated inauthentic activity, but they thought it best to avoid the acronym CIA. So I'm curious how you I remember those debates. Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, you know, maybe it's just maybe it's just a good line. Um, I'm curious how you feel about this sort of mimetic proliferation of of the term, but also whether there's a problem when the term has come to mean something to, when most people hear the term, they expect it to mean something very different to what you mean when you say it, and whether that actually means that it's obscuring more than it's clarifying. If you're kind of talking past each other, you're talking about this very narrow category of manipulation, but everyone's assuming that you're talking about manipulation more broadly. I think terminology in the context of influence operations is one of the more serious challenges that we face. What is the scope of these terms and what do they mean? And you're right. I think the mismatch between the way people use different terms is incredibly problematic. I mean, it's interesting to think about the way people use the phrases, terms, disinformation and misinformation, or as some people say it, misdisinformation. I think this is a particularly interesting and problematic term because it is a term that is specifically anchored in terms of its language into content, right? It is whether the information is true or false, but it is generally used to describe behavior, that there is a coordinated operation that is driving deception. I'm not wedded to any particular term here, And it's worth noting, I think, Alicia Wanless's work at the Partnership to Counter Influence Operations is, I think, is really important in this space. How do we drive clearer, more consistent terminology? 
I've struggled to find a better term in this context. And if you have any ideas, Evelyn, I would be very interested in a perfectly formed framework that meaningfully distinguish between all the different threats that we face here. But I think the reality is it's going to continue to evolve. We are public about our CIB takedowns. We have also begun, you were asking sort of what are we waiting for? We've begun being public about our cyber espionage takedowns. And so we've done a number of those over the past several months, including one of the more striking ones was an operation originating from China and targeting Uyghur activists around the world to compromise their devices and spy on them. So we are public about that type of threat as well, so that people can start to see the distinctions and where the lines are. We've also done a public report on a set of inauthentic behavior enforcements, which are sort of less sophisticated, more at scale. And while I think the terminology needs work across the entire field, trying to get out our understanding of what we're seeing is one of the ways that I think we can help. So you've said a couple of times that coordinated inauthentic behavior is you know, particularly egregious, particularly bad, and that's why you're focusing so much attention on it. But why <laughs> is it particularly bad as opposed to other forms of behavior? There, There is a recent Graphica report, for example, on a network of media outlets, sort of local action groups and accounts on Facebook associated with uh, the Chinese businessman Guo Wengi, who's connected to Steve Bannon, promoting conspiracy theories about the 2020 U.S. election and COVID-19. Uh, these pages coordinate, but they appear to be representing their own opinions. So this isn't CIB. Or to point to another example that um, I know Evelyn has been interested in, there are reports of a digital marketing firm, Rally Forge, which is linked to a pro-Trump youth group, Turning Points, posing as a progressive organization targeting Democratic voters, sort of promoting Green Party candidates in an effort to split the Democratic vote. This sounds bad, but it doesn't meet Facebook's definition of CIB. So are these operations you know, less bad in some way than CIB? Are they not particularly egregious in the same way? And does that gray area worry you? I describe badness here in two ways. The first is how difficult or easy is it for someone outside of a platform to understand who's actually behind a campaign? If you are systemically using a network of fake accounts, it's almost impossible for people outside of the platforms to pierce that veil. So we see it as particularly egregious because it's a space where the structure of our platform is most being used to facilitate the deception. And it's where we have the best ability to, ex we are the least cost avoider, as you would say in economics, where we have the best ability to expose these operations when others might not. The second reason I would argue it's particularly egregious is there are a lot of gray zones around what constitutes legitimate advocacy versus inauthentic deception online. We were talking about some of them earlier when you were asking about the rise of sort of these grayer techniques among these actors. The question of whether it is okay to run a network of fake accounts, that is accounts that purport to represent real people when in fact they do not, is not really a gray area. We've been very clear for years that this violates our policies. The other platforms have been very clear about this. Post-2016 public debate has, I think, largely aligned and been very clear that this is not an acceptable type of behavior. And so it is particularly egregious when people continue to do this because it is a very clear indicator that they know what they are doing is deceptive and that they are crossing these lines intentionally. The further they go from that core behavior, the less clear it is how deceptive they're being. And then the last thing that I would say is CIB, what we have seen is that the most determined and aggressive threat actors are comfortable using CIB, this particularly egregious, as I have said, technique. And it means that we often see adversarial innovation within CIB first. So in other words, new trends and new techniques express themselves within the context of CIB and then trickle down to other types of deceptions. And part of this is because we see governments and other well-funded actors trying to drive CIB. What that means is, remember I said there were multiple goals for being transparent. One of the goals is getting out awareness about new techniques as they emerge quickly. What that means is if we are systemically reporting on CIB campaigns, we are getting out public awareness of new techniques as they emerge as quickly as possible. And that's part of how we think about this. Now, none of that is to say that there aren't serious 
violations and harmful behavior that is not CIB. There's a reason that we enforce against things for inauthentic behavior. There's a reason that we enforce against a whole range of different actions on the platform. But in this particular context, as we're thinking about inauthenticity and hiding your identity, using a network of fake accounts is the most violative, the hardest to expose, and the most sort of clearly signaling of malicious intent of the various behaviors we've seen. So as we discussed, you you don't run all of Facebook. Uh, you just run a small slice of Facebook. And a common critique of the company is that the problem is not necessarily the fake or inflammatory material on the site, but rather the way that the platform as a whole is designed to amplify that content and privilege it over maybe more boring, but true and to use your language, authentic material. I'm wondering how you feel about that critique and whether you ever feel like your work is thwarted or made harder by the way that the product you're in charge of securing is itself designed. I understand why people make that critique, but when you actually push on the evidence behind it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And what I mean by that is this, people react to inflammatory content, but there is a lot of research and a lot of evidence showing that people don't want to spend a bunch of time in environments that are full of inflammatory content. And so if you're a social media platform and you want to build communities that will persist, you want to build communities that will last more than a few days, that will be more than a flash in the pan, you don't want those communities to be full of inflammatory content because people will leave. That's just very clear what all the research that I've seen indicates. And so the incentive from a Facebook perspective, and many of these decisions are not decisions that you know my team is making, but it is against our business interests to build communities that are full of inflammatory content. I think everything that the company is trying to do is to drive that type of stuff down and to help support authentic voices and more meaningful debate. So I think that that is a claim that I often hear that I just haven't seen supported by evidence. So I want to push you on that a little bit because I, I do feel like, you know, if you asked me, you know, what kind of restaurant would you enjoy going to, right? I would, and my options were, you know, some sort of vegan you know, all plant, super healthy restaurant that, you know, was great for you and made you feel wonderful after you finished eating your food versus a fast food shop. I would say the former, but sometime I'm going to go and eat a hamburger and then I'm going to feel terrible about the grease that I just consumed. Like people might say that they want a uh, environment that is, you know, more true, more authentic, more boring, not full of outrage, but that's, distinct from what their behaviors actually show they're interested in, isn't it? So I'm not sure that I would equate a more authentic environment with a more boring one. I think that's one of the challenges in this discussion, right? I think it's important probably to take a step back as we have this conversation and remember that this isn't so much a question about Facebook or any social media platform. It's a broader societal challenge about how we have impassioned public debate in a way that is constructive how we have these useful broader discussions where there is authenticity in the conversation, but there's also conviction and meaning and emotion. And that's something that we've grappled with as far back as the days of yellow journalism and every sort of form of media has grappled with this challenge. But I don't think that authentic discussion means that it's boring. Actually, in many cases, authentic discussion and authentic conversations are some of the most exciting. The question that I would ask is, do people want to come back again and again and again to the content that makes them feel bad afterwards? No, they don't. They want to engage with something that expands their horizons, where they see their friends having a debate or a discussion, where they sort of learn something or where they're amused or, um, you know, uh, distracted or get, get to relax while they're watching a pretty cat video. These are the things that people by both their behavior and I think what they say, express that they want over the longer term. 
I wonder if that means that your job is really redundant then if uh, no one would really engage in this content at all, given that they would just be choosing all of the wonderful vegan uh, healthy content and this stuff would just get no reaction. By the way, I would always go to the vegan restaurant. Um, I, I don't know why why Quinta set that up for No, my, po- my point is that most of the time I want that too. <laughs> it felt very inauthentic to me, to be honest. Very suspicious. <laughs> but unfortunately, the challenge is, right, that there are communities of threat actors. And you mentioned earlier, I know you were asking about sort of the militarized language in this space. And I would argue, actually, the term threat actor, the term defender, they have become militarized, but it's because they are about security. It's about protecting against malicious actors that are intending to exploit our weaknesses as humans. And as long as you have those people, those communities, those organizations, which again, sadly, long predate the internet, you are going to have attempts to drive this other type of content. You are going to have attempts to divide people and push inflammatory content and create manipulation and deception. As long as that exists, unfortunately, I think the defenders in different places in society, whether you're talking about government, civil society, industry, or the media, are going to have very busy jobs. Okay. So that actually leads in really well to the next question. We can't let you go without asking about my other favorite topic, which is your coordination in this space with other platforms and the government, as you just mentioned. So increasingly, you're talking about how you all work together to root out this kind of activity, and you made a big deal out of it in the lead up to the US election. You'd release these statements touting your collaborative spirit, but as you know, I, I found them kind of ridiculous. Um, they would say things like, in the final weeks before election day, we've increased our coordination efforts against disinformation campaigns to ensure the integrity of the election, election information across our platforms. Uh, we will continue to work together and share updates in the days leading up to and following the election on November three. Now, first, I'm I'm not sure that we ever did get an update about those collaborations. And second, I'm not sure that it matters because I think it's barely possible to include less information in that statement as to what your collaboration involved. I mean, you could be getting together and playing table tennis in those rooms for all we know, although you did say earlier that a third of your takedowns come from external tips. So I guess it's not all fun and games. But, you know, there's this question of is the fact that you were coordinating with the government against disinformation in the context of the US 2020 election supposed to be comforting? Like, what role should the government play in combating disinformation? And do you do this with other governments apart from the US government? I I think you can see the point that I'm trying to get at here. This is sold as a really great thing, but to me, it looks like a really opaque set of arrangement between private companies and the government to combat political disinformation, you know, this militarized stuff. But it goes back to this this thing that, you know, it's essentially also, in a sense, the censorship of, of political speech. So, you know, this is not so much a question as, as a comment or, or a screed, really. But, but why am I wrong to be worried about this? Well, first of all, I would say if you ever want to get together and play some table tennis, let me know, because that is a legitimate game. I love it. But to your point about the actual collaboration, I think it's really important that these communities are working together to share threat information which is very different from working together to make decisions on enforcement. When we're collaborating with anybody, whether it's another company, whether it's government, whether it's open source researchers who we, we speak with quite a bit, whether it is the media or journalists, investigative journalists often bring us information about enforcements as well. What I will say is I will always take information. I would always like to know about what another researcher is seeing. That doesn't mean that we're going to enforce on it we conduct our own independent assessment. If it violates our policies, we will then take action against it in the same way that any other platform would do. That type of threat sharing is essential because influence operations don't just target one platform. One of the other trends in that threat report is the trend of platform diversification, as we called it. And by that, I mean influence operations today are targeting more and more social media platforms. They're targeting websites on the open internet, They're directly targeting journalists. They're targeting public debate in many different ways. And they are actually designed in this way to make it so that no single institution can actually fully understand or enforce against an operation by a threat actor. A really good example of this is an operation called Operation Secondary Infection, which is from about a year and a half ago at this point, and was a Russian-backed campaign 
to target public debate across Europe. And ultimately, I believe that that operation relied on more than 300 different online platforms, including many, many, many local blogs, small message boards, and similar sorts of things. In an environment like this, if you are not sharing information with the other defenders, you cannot actually protect public debate. Now, I do think that raises important questions about how we be transparent about this and how we share information about what we're doing. We had an interesting learning in this. If you go back to 2019 and 2018, when government and industry were meeting, we didn't talk about those meetings publicly. And inevitably what happened is someone learned about one, concluded that it was a secret meeting, and then there was this whole news cycle about what was it, what was said, how secret was it, what was the coordination. Even though in these conversations, we're having strategic level discussions about what are the types of threats we're seeing, what are the trends that we're seeing, how do we all think about how to tackle these problems, as opposed to anything tactical, like, like sharing specific information about particular cases. And so the uh, public statements that uh, you were sort of making fun of there are about getting more and more transparent, showing that we are meeting and kind of taking some of the mystery away from it. Now, I would love to think about ways to be more transparent about how to share all this information. And it's one reason why when we do our public takedowns, we cite to where we got the information if it came from an external source. Obviously, we want to give credit to the researchers, but we also want people to understand the different people who are talking to expose these operations. You do have to be careful the more you share about these types of collaborations, the more you provide a map to the threat actors that are trying to become more, target more platforms. And it actually seems reasonably clear that one of the reasons that these actors are targeting more and more platforms is because enforcement on the major social media platforms is getting aggressive enough that their accounts on one platform are just getting taken down too quickly. And so they're looking to spread out to be harder to catch. So you have to be thinking ahead of this adversarial innovation. That said, I'd be interested to think about more ways to impose better transparency on this to provide more comfort and to sort of demonstrate clearly that what's happening is threat sharing as opposed to coordination on enforcement. So what do you think of the U.S. government's capability in this space? And I'm particularly curious how you see it having developed or not developed over the last few years, as it feels like platforms have really developed their own capabilities? I mean, in 2016, there were no defenders on the field, right? You really didn't have defenders, defender teams thinking about this type of threat in a systemic way in industry or in government or in civil society. And the biggest and most encouraging shift since then is that there are now determined expert teams that are focused on this challenge in each of those institutions. That includes the U.S. government, and it includes other governments. And we've seen, I mean, I, I, we've mentioned that about a third of these campaigns are a result of tips from third-party experts. Some of those are from the FBI and from the U.S. government. And one of the things that's encouraging is that when the FBI is sharing information with us, they generally want us to be public and supportive of the idea of people knowing where it came from so that people understand what the source of that was. I think that's a really good sign. And one of the things that government can do that industry and civil society cannot is investigate more comprehensively and peel back the layers of attribution. If someone is coordinating off of our platform, our teams aren't going to see that. And so you need the expertise of government to do it. Obviously, I think there is room to grow for government, just like everyone else, as we learn more about these platforms and learn more about these threats. And one of the interesting challenges is we certainly work with the U.S. government. We work with other governments around the world. And the most effective space you can find yourself is when you have all four of those communities, government, civil society, industry, and the media, all focused on this threat and all tackling it in their own way. I think an interesting challenge for all of us to think about is going forward, if one of those four communities is actually the source of an influence operation, isn't a defender, that might be a government in other parts of the world, it might be others, how does the rest of the community still hold them to account and still tackle the challenge? So we were sort of talking before about concerns about the street light effect when it comes to you. And I'm curious whether you have the same 
questions or concerns about the people or the governments that you collaborate with. You know, we were talking about the US government specifically, but you just said you collaborate with a bunch of other governments. But I mean, the entirety of free speech theory is based on the idea that, you know, the government shouldn't be determining what political speech should or should not be allowed. And how do you feel any sort of sense of confidence when you are collaborating with governments all around the world, perhaps in countries where you don't necessarily understand the political dynamics uh, as well as you do in the US, that these governments are not just sort of targeting and, and feeding you tips about the things that they're concerned about, as opposed to some sort of objective measure of what is manipulative on the platform so far as there can even be some sort of objective measure. So if we're working with governments around the world, I think it's very important to be clear. If I get a tip from government, no matter who the government is, it doesn't mean that our teams are going to take action on it. We will only take action on it if it violates our policies. We'll conduct an independent investigation ourselves and we take time in to understand. This is one of the other reasons why these investigations take time is because we have to be very conscious of if it's a tip, where the tip came from, what that could mean, and to understand the full environment. I also think when we're talking with governments, this is one place where domestic versus foreign does make a difference, right? You're going to be particularly careful if you get a tip from a government of something that might seem that it impacts domestic speech within that government's zone as opposed to a foreign actor. These are all factors that you have to take into account in trying to make sure that we're being public about this stuff, that we're enforcing on it consistently, and that we are playing a role where we can partner with other communities, whether it's government or civil society when appropriate, and do what we can to hold them account when it's appropriate. All right. I think that's all the time we have. Nathaniel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both for having me and thanks for the conversation. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Hamza Shitu. And our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening. <laughs>